Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. This year, we've had unprecedented fires in Australia and California, the most active hurricane season on record with over 30 storms named, devastating floods in India and China, and Siberia reached 38 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And all the while, we've been battling COVID-19, which was caused in part by our myopic and destructive environmental policies. Yet we continue to increase global gas emissions. The clock is ticking. The Minnesota Supreme Court and the Washington Supreme Court have accepted that the existential climate crisis warrants a necessity defense under criminal law. The defense of climate necessity for the peaceful civil disobedience of environmental activists now has legs. Yet people who exercise their constitutional right to peaceful assembly and free speech to protest our destructive socioeconomic policies that cause climate change have been attacked by increasingly militarized police forces. The environmental movement has been infiltrated by the government and private security firms in an effort to divide and eviscerate it. Energy transfer partners hired Tiger Swan as its private security force, which utilized counter-terrorism tactics against activists at Standing Rock. Physically attacked, activists are also lanced into court on vexatious claims. The Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, enacted to combat organized crime, has been used as a slap against the environmental movement. And now they've come for the attorneys. Chevron's interminable attacks against Stephen Donzinger are a warning to all public interest attorneys. Stephen was part of an Ecuadorian team of lawyers that obtained the largest environmental judgment in history, $9.8 billion, for environmental atrocities committed by Texaco, which Chevron acquired, in the Ecuadorian Amazon contaminating the water of and causing egregious injuries to the local indigenous communities. Chevron, which had fought to bring the case originally filed in New York to Ecuador, pulled its assets out of Ecuador and has not paid a single cent of the judgment to date. Rather, they sued Stephen in the Southern District of New York on RICO claims, claiming in part that he bribed Alberto Guerra to ghostwrite the judgment in the plaintiff's favor. Apart from the fact that Guerra's testimony was inconsistent, not supported by evidence, and later disputed by Guerra himself, who admitted that pertinent parts of his testimony were simply untrue, Chevron has paid Guerra, ostensibly in witness protection fees, over a million dollars to date. While Chevron claimed astronomical damages in its RICO suit, it waived its damages weeks before the jury trial was set to begin, preventing Stephen from being judged by a jury of his peers. Stephen is currently under house arrest and has been for over 500 days. Unprecedented for an attorney. On a criminal contempt charge, which the maximum sentence, if he were found guilty, is but six months. As he is prosecuted for a federal misdemeanor, he is again facing judgment without a jury of his peers. These egregious miscarriages of justice are compounded by the fact that an obscure rule was enacted after the U.S. attorney for the Southern District refused to prosecute, allowing for a private law firm and one that represented Chevron and has clients in the fossil fuels industry to prosecute Stephen, billing by the hour as they do so. Chevron may be sending a signal that public interest attorneys should walk away. Yet the warning we need to hear is that if they can get away with this, what else can they get away with? And who is next? This is the reason the human rights attorney and advocate Lauren Regan, the founder and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center, is representing Stephen. Lauren has devoted her entire legal career to the public interest, and I spoke to Lauren on this matter the litigation strategy of the climate necessity defense, defending activists against slap suits and police misconduct, and the way forward for attorneys to aid climate activists. It's 100 seconds to midnight, and we have no time to wait. Welcome to Gravity, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so you're the founder and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center. May you please tell our audience about the litigation, education, training, and advocacy work of the Civil Liberties Defense Center and why you started it? Sure. Um, so I started the CLDC in 2003, so it's been about 17 years now. Uh, time is flying by. 
And um, I started the organization to support movements that seek to dismantle the political and economic structures um, at the root of social um, inequality and environmental destruction. So we provide litigation, uh, like you mentioned. We represent activists, progressive social change activists in the criminal courts around the United States, both federal and state. We represent organizations and activists that are sued under slap suits, strategic lawsuits against public participation. And then we sue the state, basically. We sue police and government agencies for violating the constitutional rights of activists, either through police brutality or illegal spying on political activists. And we've been doing that for a while with a scrappy, small uh, organization um, and it's just kind of grown over the years. We come from movement backgrounds, and um, we basically use our legal skills to further progressive social change. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and, and thank you for doing that. And you're right. You're absolutely right that we need to address the structural uh, causes of um, social and economic injustice. Okay, so I thought we might start with Stephen Donzinger mm-hmm. and uh, the contemptible contempt case against him in which you're one of the uh, lead attorneys. And before we go into that, I thought um, for some of our audience that might not know who Stephen is, and in particular, uh, Chevron's interminable crusade against him, uh, to just give them a bit of background. Um, so Stephen filed a class action in New York against Texaco, which Chevron later acquired in 1993. Stephen filed on behalf of Indigenous peoples and residents of the Amazonian rainforest in Ecuador who were exposed to contaminants from oil drilling. And uh, the injuries they were suffering um, were quite uh, egregious, cancer, birth defects, reproductive harm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to uh, say that it was a large team of lawyers, human rights and environmental lawyers, um, both Ecuadorian and U.S.-based. When they originally filed the case in the U.S., and it was actually Chevron and their, um, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of lawyers that got it moved to Ecuador, primarily because they thought the regime in Ecuador at that time was going to be very friendly to the fossil fuel industry, uh, and they thought that it would be a better outcome for Chevron if they forced the case to go to Ecuador. So the whole U.S. legal team found lawyers in Ecuador. They set up shop in Ecuador. um, And, yeah, they ended up getting the largest judgment, environmental judgment, um, against Chevron in the world. It started off at $19.5 billion, which included a big chunk of punitive damages because the Ecuadorian judges had never seen such blatant annihilation and destruction of the rainforest, basically. Um, that, that award was later reduced only because Ecuador didn't even have a punitive damage, um, you know, law yet on the books. Um, and then as soon as that judgment occurred, basically Chevron and its law firm, Gibson Dunn, in, started on a path of trying any legal strategies possible to usurp that judgment. And basically, for them, um, if small Ecuadorian villagers were able to win a $9 billion award against the fossil fuel industry, the fossil fuel industry would not be able to make as much in profit around the world, you know, so for them, this case was incredibly important. If the people, if the Ecuadorians, the victims were to prevail, it would be bad for the shareholders. And so they dumped every amount of resource and money into these lawyers who basically their job was to come up with dirty tricks to try to undercut and um, get the judgment tossed out. And so one of the ways that they did that 
is they decided to go after a small group of the actual lawyers. And this kind of ties into like why I even got involved in the case. To me, the reason that these lawyers targeted Stephen and um, some of the other leaders was not because they really did anything wrong, but because if they were able to scare away lawyers and litigants from suing the fossil fuel industry, you know, by, by basically making a poster child out of Stephen, they hoped to chill other lawyers from filing similar cases. And so when Stephen was first attacked by Gibson, Dunn, and Chevron um, through a RICO action, there were a lot of lawyers and activists that were afraid to hook their wagons to his. They were afraid, you know, Chevron did such abusive, intense, uh, you know, hunting people down around the country, subpoenaing thousands of pages of documents, you know, making small NGOs hire lawyers to fight back against Chevron's goons, you know, during these cases. And the whole reason for that circus to be taking shape was so that activists and organizers and lawyers would never go after this industry again in a similar way. And it was for exactly that reason that I and my organization decided we had to step up and defend Stephen for free, because it's not really about Stephen. You know, he just happens to be the unlucky person in the hot seat right now. But if they are successful in destroying him, then who knows who's next? You know, and as somebody who also does public interest environmental work, um, you know, I can certainly put myself in Stephen's shoes and recognize that if the tactics that Gibson Dunn and Chevron are using in this case uh, work to their benefit, then the door is swung wide open for future similar abuses to happen to lawyers around the world. And especially, you know, the idea of using RICO, this racketeering mm-hmm. law, to undercut foreign judgments. You know, this is They were the ones that moved it to Ecuador. This judgment went up to the Ecuadorian highest courts and was affirmed. And the harms occurred in Ecuador. So for Chevron to then try to, like, you know, shop around the world looking for a court that would say that the judgment was invalid and they didn't have to pay it, you know, that's not the way the legal system is supposed to work. But that's, you know, in essence what they are trying to do. Yeah, it does seem that they are trying to attack uh, all public interest attorneys, right? And um and and the the facts of the case and the procedures of the case just seem very Kafkaesque, very and bizarre, right? Like you were talking about the subpoenas, so this was before the RICO action. It appeared that Judge Kaplan might have even suggested the RICO action to Chevron when he was granting the subpoenas, which seems to me like a judge is then suggesting litigation strategy to a plaintiff. And then, you know, Chevron, a few weeks before trial, deciding that even though they were claiming astronomical damages, that they would waive all the damages, they'd go for injunctive relief and therefore deny Stephen, the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. And of course, costs and fees don't go to that. So he's still got stuck with hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. But it just seems how this case is a great look at how procedure is really substantive, right, (laughs) in the court system and um, how a litany of lawyers can use all these loopholes to really um, ostracize someone and attack them. Yeah, I mean, Judge Kaplan, you know, before becoming a judge, um, was a lawyer for the tobacco industry. And so he's very familiar with public interest and, you know, lawyers versus big, fat industry lawyers. Um, And, you know, he's been pretty unabashed about what side of the equation he falls on. Um, And you're right, you know, he he did suggest uh, RICO. 
Um, and, you know, Chevron, like many of the big corporations, they thrive on secrecy. Um, you know, the threat of reputational harm to these corporations is, you know, one of their gravest challenges. And so to keep things out of the light, you know, to do away with jury trials, to purchase and buy media and then silence and bully and threaten, um, you know, the people's media, you know, all of those tactics um, are, are used by giant bullies like Chevron and Gibson Dunn to usurp our basic democratic systems. You know, whether that is, um, you know, legislative, whether it is within the courts, you, they, they're all being turned on their head by this idea that, uh, you know, the best money can buy. You know, if you throw enough money at something and you get enough lawyers turning over, you know, every rock, you're bound to find something that you can make a mountain out of a molehill with. I completely agree. And when we think about that, Judge Kaplan, he invoked a very rare rule. Rule 42 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure um, allows a judge to appoint a special prosecutor in a matter. Now, it appears that the U.S. attorney for the Southern District refused to prosecute Stephen in a contempt trial and that this rule was invoked by Judge Kaplan. And not only that, but Stuart Kissel were appointed as special prosecutors, even though they represented Chevron in 2018. Correct. Yeah, and that, um, and then Kaplan, Judge Kaplan, rather than observing the usual random selection process for the judge to preside over the contempt trial, handpicked Judge Preska. Now, is this not a little bizarre? <laughs> I mean, this seems quite extraordinary and also quite patently unfair. Yeah. And, you know, it just goes to show you how emboldened they are to pile all of these, you know, I mean, if it were just one of these things, you'd just kind of think, well, it's circumstantial. But when you start listing off all of the procedural irregularities, um, you know, the test in the U.S. courts is, is there an appearance of bias or impartiality? And there's just no denying that with Kaplan, Preska, and Seward Kissel, that there is an appearance of bias. <laughs> they profit, you know, Seward Kissel profits off of representing uh, Chevron as well as other parts of the industry, like all of the shipping tankers um, that are used to transport that oil, you know, Sukis, um, you know, represents and works with. So, their their gravy train, you know, their money pipeline is all interconnected with each other. Um, and it's sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod that, you know, if Sukis does the bidding of, uh, you know, Chevron, then maybe they'll get a couple of lucrative clients out of it. You know, and that's just not the way our system of justice is supposed to work. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking about now, you know, like when you've got a private firm standing in the shoes of the U.S. prosecutor, but that private firm is billing by the hour, and it's in their interest to make as much money off of this prosecution of this human rights lawyer, that also just kind of flies in the face of how the U.S. You know, criminal punishment system is supposed to work. Or, or perhaps how it's meant to work on paper, because um, historically, unfortunately, the criminal justice system has not really been just in the United States. And part of this is, you know, not having a jury trial, right? Because uh, I think if there were a jury trial, perhaps we would have had a different verdict. Um, maybe the jury would have been suspect of the uh, more than million dollars paid to the star witness that Chevron had. And, uh, and so forth. But what is the actual contempt charge? Is the contempt charge against Stephen, who has been under house arrest since the uh, very ominous day of August 6, 2019, when Kaplan dropped that bomb of house arrest, was it because Stephen didn't want to reveal uh, privileged communications on his laptop and his phone, which any attorney would be quite shocked to have to hand over their laptop and their phone, which has confidential client communications? And privileged communications. And I believe that he did say 
that while he would appeal the decision, if the appellate court upheld that decision, that he would, in the end, uh, hand over his laptop and phone. Is is that what the, this house arrest is all about and this continued yeah. prosecution? Yeah. I mean, it's another one of those things that you just kind of shake your head. Like, do they not think that this is suspicious? But yeah, so basically what happened is Gibson Dunn... Um, and Chevron made an allegation that Stephen was violating the terms of that ridiculous RICO judgment. Um, what Stephen was actually doing was continuing to fundraise for the Ecuadorians so that they could continue to try to collect on the judgment in Canada and other countries. Um, but Gibson Dunn and Chevron hails him back into court and says, Wang, you know, he's violating the terms of this agreement. And of course, you know, Kaplan is going to oblige them. And Kaplan says to Donziger, you know, you have to turn over all of your devices to Chevron uh, and Chevron's forensic guy so that they can look through all of your stuff and figure out if you are, in fact, violating this RICO judgment. And of course, we all know that really what Chevron wants is they want the legal strategies uh, so that they can usurp you know, this from happening again to them. They want the names of the local organizers, activists, sympathizers, supporters you know, back in Ecuador that helped the lawyers win the case. And so Judge Kaplan orders the lawyer, to turn over all of his computer's cell phone's devices to Chevron. And, of course, Donziger says, you know, I can't do that. I've got attorney-client privilege. I've got First Amendment rights. I'm afraid for the lives of these people because, you know, we all knew by that point that, like, Chevron's, you know, brown shirts and, like, henchmen were, you know, out doing all sorts of, like, threatening and um, criminal acts, you know, toward folks that dared to try and help the case. Um, and so he said, you know, he researched it. You know, at this point, he's representing himself because he can't find any lawyers. They've got all his money, you know, seized and hung up, so he can't pay for a lawyer. So he's representing himself. And he basically says, you know, okay, judge, you know, it's my understanding that the way that this is supposed to work for lawyers who don't agree with a discovery ruling is I'm going to go appeal to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and let them take a second look at your ruling. If they agree with you and they say, I have to give this stuff up, I'll give it up. But I can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so until the Second Circuit rules, I'm not going to turn over these things. And he, you know, literally like walks out of the courtroom and files the appeal. Um, and within a couple of days, Kaplan basically, you know, walks across the hallway to the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, the proverbial hallway, and says, I want you to file criminal contempt charges. You know, he, so basically, I forgot to mention, Kaplan finds Donziger in civil contempt of court. Um, Donziger appeals the civil contempt finding, Kaplan walks across the hall and tells the U.S. Attorney's Office, I want you to file criminal contempt charges against him, too. This is incredibly, incredibly rare. Normally, the way that this process is supposed to work is exactly as Donziger proposed. You're supposed to let a, you know, a neutral set of eyeballs check the work of the judge that found you in contempt of court. For Kaplan to go across the hall and try to instigate, and did in fact instigate, federal criminal charges against a lawyer who is on appeal for the civil contempt is unprecedented, unprecedented around the country. And so then when those criminal charges are filed and Donziger comes back for his arraignment, he realizes that they're actually going to put him in jail, which is also like unprecedented. He ends up having to post $800,000 bond. He has to wear an ankle monitor with GPS 24-7, and they bind him to house arrest. He's not allowed to leave his apartment. In fact, it's coming up on the 500th day of home detention. 
pending trial, the longest by far of anyone who has ever been pre-trial, you know, um, awaiting trial for criminal contempt. You know, the, the longest that he could do in jail if he were convicted of this charge would be six months. So he has, like, you know, surpassed that, you know, almost threefold at this point. And, of course, that, you know, imprisoning him in his home uh, is also just part of the bully tactics you know, meant to scare other lawyers, meant to punish him before he's even been found guilty of the charge. And so all of these antics also, you know, just deprave the legal system and the legal process, you know, to see this ugliness, this bias, um, you know, these games being played with the legal system and with a lawyer and the lawyer's life and the, you know, Lawyer's got a kid and a wife and, you know, Bill is trying to, like, work with his clients and all of these other things. Like, it's just disgraceful. Now, uh, is Stephen going to be having a, um, a jury trial? Is, is Does he still have his Sixth Amendment right to that? Or um, is that also going to be eviscerated? <laughs> well, so as usual, you know, Gibson Dunn and, and the Chevron hijinks um, have, so basically... Chevron, Gibson Dunn, Chevron, Sukis, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, they basically said in open court um, that they don't intend to seek more than six months of jail time, which makes the offense a petty misdemeanor in federal court. You know, contempt, criminal contempt is one of those crimes that um, it's not necessarily a felony or a misdemeanor. It kind of, it can depend and so they announced in open court that they were going to seek, you know, six months or less of jail time, which basically makes it this federal misdemeanor, which means you don't have the right to a jury trial. So once again, they've taken away the ability of Stephen to explain what is happening and what has happened to a jury of his peers. And of course, you know, the reason in both cases that the jury was taken away is because, you know, if people were actually exposed to the truth of, you know, what has happened, they would never uh, rule in favor of Chevron. You know, they're going to rule in favor of Stephen Donziger and his Ecuadorian clients. And so they've basically manipulated that system so that he will not have that day. Yeah, they avoided a jury trial in the RICO action. They're avoiding a jury trial now in the criminal action. And uh, that is really uh, unfortunate. And I'm, I still remain quite flummoxed that one, that this is actually happening and being allowed to happen. And, and two, that I expected more media coverage and, you know, public outrage. There's certainly public outrage, but it seems to me it should be on the headline of every paper that this is what's happening to a human rights lawyer. And if it happens to one, as you earlier said, Lauren, it can happen to any human rights lawyer. Yeah. And if you can't challenge your violations in court because you don't have any lawyer representing you, then that really gives a lot of leeway to people misinterpreting the Constitution and uh, trampling over other people. But moving on from this trial, I find it really <laughs> perturbing that uh, RICO, which was enacted by Congress to prevent uh, organized crime, it was a tool against organized crime, that it has been utilized now by energy companies um, or the oil uh, sector against environmental activists. Stephen's not the only one. Energy transfer partners filed RICO claims against environmental activists protesting the Black Snake or the Dakota Access Pipeline. And it just seems this is like a new fashion, a new mode of uh, slap actions against the environmental movement. Well, and Gibson Dunn, you know, actually, if you go to their website, they brag about being the daddies of concocting up this plan of using RICO in favor of the fossil fuel industry and against victims. Um, you know, whether it's Dole, the banana plantation against the workers that were like dying from uh, poisoning to, you know, Citizens United, you know, all of that, all of those cases came out of Gibson Dunn. 
Um, and yeah, they came up with this playbook um, because they were losing in the court of public opinion. You know, the Oil and Gas Journal, I think, reported that the number one threat to the viability of the fossil fuel industry is the climate movement because of the threat of reputational harm. You know, no longer are they able to purchase, you know, buy and pay for, um, you know, media that is able to manipulate the truth and convince people of a false narrative. You know, we, the people, have gotten our shit together, basically, and, uh, you know, organizing among ourselves. You know, we now are exposing the truth and educating each other, and it just no longer flies for them, especially in the U.S., um, to use uh, that, you know, that kind of smear campaign. And so in the face of that, you know, in the face of losing in the court of public opinion, losing the moral high ground, um, you know, especially Americans just becoming more educated to the realities of climate change, et cetera, et cetera, they came up with this other tactic trying to um, smear the movement by trying to, like, basically, you know, change the media narrative. So instead of being public interest activists doing public interest work to try to save the planet and protect the health of um, you know of everyone, including poor people and black and brown people, and you know all these people that traditionally have far less power, um, you know they're basically trying to turn that on its head and say that these people are mobsters, you know that they're engaged in a conspiracy of eco-terrorism, uh, you know, because they dare to put their bodies on the line and stop pipeline construction, for instance, you know. I mean, it's just a really pathetic smear job. It's a bunch of high-paid media consultants that came up with, you know, along with the lawyers, came up with this strategy like, hey, why don't we take these victims and call them racketeers instead. And if we throw enough money at this and we buy off a bunch of the mainstream media outlets, um, you know, maybe we can convince people that this is true, even though, you know, of course, anybody looking at it with eyes open would see that it's just a joke. Uh, with respect to the Dakota Access Pipeline, there was a claim against an unincorporated association, you know, the the actual environmental movement. I mean, I don't know that, that, you know, that didn't go down too well with the bench, thank God, but it's uh, just crazy the lengths that they would concoct these just uh, really, they're not cogent at all, these claims. But aside from being threatened in court, there's actually physical injuries that have also occurred. Um, at Standing Rock. It has been a vilification campaign, uh, lots of people being charged on these ridiculous charges and then having to get lawyers and uh, be available for court dates. And um, and I'm sure that it has had a chilling effect, unfortunately. But these crowd control weapons, even the term crowd control is really ominous. It just shows what disrespect um, there is towards uh, what is the exercise of a fundamental constitutional right. It is the First Amendment. It's right there on top, the first, to have a peaceful assembly to um, be able to exercise your right of free speech. If we don't have freedom of association, we don't have a democracy because you can't have one without, without the other. And for police to go into a situation and not de-escalate, but to use weapons that you can call them crowd control, you can call them less than lethal, non-lethal weapons, but they do injure people and quite severely they injure people. And you are representing a number of protesters that have been harmed by police misconduct at Standing Rock. May you please tell our audience more about the details of these cases? Yes, we represent water protectors that were attacked by North Dakota law enforcement while they were engaged in, um, you know, like you said, lawful First Amendment activity. Um, One of our clients, Sophia Walensky, was a young woman. I think she was 20 at the time. um, And she was just nonviolently standing on um, the bridge that went over the Cannonball River when law enforcement shot a munition at her that basically blew off her arm. 
Um, they were able to kind of reattach it, but it will, you know, it will never function as an arm. Um, and in the aftermath of that extremely serious injury, the first thing that the North Dakota cops attempted to do was say that she blew herself up. And in fact, even today, the FBI continues, um, they actually currently have a grand jury going on where they are, quote unquote, investigating whether or not Sophia caused her own injuries, which is ludicrous and vile um, you know, at, at an incredible level. But there were dozens and dozens of water protectors who were gravely injured by law enforcement. And, you know, I think what I would say to this is what we have seen over the last several years is law enforcement treating black and brown led movements, whether it's the indigenous led movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline, or it is the black led movement um, you know, against the killing of George Floyd and, you know, Black Lives Matter, we've seen unchecked police brutality and police violence against protesters in a way that we have not seen uh, against mostly white environmental and climate defenders uh, in the last decade. And so um, the systemic racism within law enforcement in particular has really been exposed through these cases and hasn't really gotten the attention that it probably deserves. But, you know, but what happened at Standing Rock was shocking to almost everyone. And the clear takeaway that the state was attempting to, um, you know, insinuate there was, um, you know, if you come out and protest pipelines, this is what you're going to get. Um, you know, and, and it was clear that the brutality that was used by those North Dakota cops, um, and then actually um, the sheriff uh, of one of the counties um, in North Dakota traveled around the country and did like a road show on teaching the quote-unquote standing rock model of policing. And so he went along to other fossil fuel hotspots um, where other pipelines were, you know, threatening uh, construction and other things, and basically taught local cops how to brutalize protesters as fast as possible with the hope that they will not amass and that they will be too scared to actually go out and exercise their First Amendment rights. Yeah, um, that's very, very democratic of them. <laughs> but that is, you know, a, a really effective tool, right? Particularly it's classic state repression, you know, it's classic authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. And it's really such a triangulation of different tactics, right? It's like you, you, we're going to make these uh, scandalous and um, really it's just hyperbole, these claims, right? They're just so absurd. But even if they're absurd, you got to go, you got to waste time, you got to waste expenses defending them. And then um, maybe some people think, that's true. Maybe job offers don't come through. It could have negative reputational effects. It could certainly chill um, your speech. But then also they are physically injuring people. <laughs> they are physically preventing people from doing that. I mean, they arrested and prosecuted hundreds of water protectors. And I think they ended up basically getting a couple of dozen convictions out of hundreds and hundreds of arrests, you know, false arrests. So, you know, I think, you know, with repression, looking at Standing Rock, you, know, you always have an abuse of litigation, you know, criminal prosecutions as well as slap suits, you know, civil. You always have um, legislation. You know, North Dakota tried to pass a law that made it lawful to run down protesters standing in roadways you know, to murder people. Um, you know, they tried to legislate that. You know, and other states around the country are doing it as well. You always see surveillance you know, tiger swan um, and, you know, and law enforcement infiltrating and spying on this indigenous-led movement in an unprecedented fashion. You know, all of those parts are always part of state repression. 
Um, you know, it, it, it's a historic model that they just keep playing over and over again. You know, they get some new toys. They come up with a couple new tactics. But, you know, you go back to the origins of our democracy and you've seen the state respond like this to movements that threaten the status quo. And I would say also threaten capitalism. Yeah. In that respect, people use the tools they have. So if we're going to give police essentially military equipment (laughs) and maybe not effectively teach them how to use these weapons, but we have militarized departments all around. That's what they've been given. They're not given de-escalation training, right? Um, And then you also have infiltrators, FBI agents and so forth, trying to figure out who is the violent activist. But at that time, what they're doing is they're, um, there's the law of unintended consequences. They're actually encouraging activists to be violent. It's horrendous. Yeah. And I mean, from my vantage point, you know, having defended activists for 23 years now, it's not very often that um, the FBI or other types of you know, undercover investigators are actually looking for criminal activity. You know, more often than not, what you see is that they are trying to psychologically profile the movement. They're trying to figure out how do they pick tactics? How do they pick targets? Who's leading? Uh, you know, they're trying to map the, the movement as a whole so that they can find the Achilles heel so that they can find the pinch point that could potentially bring it down. They want to learn, like, if we, um, you know, if we inject an infiltrator that starts um, dividing the movement based on race, or if we start snitch jacketing, you know, the leaders of the movement, then it will put such pressure on the movement that it will implode, you know, or it will fall to its knees. You know, those types of tactics we, we see time and time again. I mean, they're not worried about, you know, somebody who pours some gasoline over a bulldozer. You know, that's just the cover. You know, what they're really trying to do is figure out how to crush the movement as a whole and stop it from moving on to the next campaign. Yeah, which is way worse. Yeah. <laughs> And then you add to that, you know, Trump and his, you know, hundreds of federalist judges that have been appointed to the federal courts all around the country who have a very different vision of constitutional rights than you and I. And, you know, it's pretty freaking scary looking forward. You know, I mean, when you, you think about the fact that we've got a decade to, you know, stop catastrophic climate change. and you've got all of these, you know, very conservative pro-industry capitalist federalist judges now on the benches everywhere. We're going to have, you know, the rest of my legal career is going to be an uphill battle in, in fighting these fights, you know, because this playing field has been so screwed up. Yeah, I just hope that more lawyers are coming out in the next generation They're very cognizant of what's happening. I don't understand how anybody can't be. 20 years ago, we were reading about this, but now we're not just reading about it. You live in Oregon. I live in California. I mean, this year we've been wearing masks, a pandemic that was caused by environmental catastrophe. The fires, you wake up and it's on your skin. We woke up to a sky in Carnadine. I have hope that people will, once they feel it on their skin, wherever they are, they they can't deny that there are serious repercussions. Well, and I think, you know, history teaches us, too, that if the state, you know, if the government takes away all of the legal ways for the people to advocate for themselves and to protect themselves, then they force the people to act in illegal ways. You know, so by shutting down all of the traditional lawful mechanisms of social change, um, you know, and and we have experts, you know, when we are doing climate necessity trials, we have these experts that will come and testify and they basically say, you know, all of the normal democratic systems like legislating, um, you know, lobbying, uh, petitioning at all of those traditional forms of advocacy, they have been usurped by the gross profits 
of the fossil fuel industry. Um, their money has poisoned our democratic systems to the extent that they no longer function. And, you know, and so those experts argue that, of course, people are going to engage in direct action and break the law because there's no legal way for them to save themselves. And, and that's kind of, you know, what the climate necessity defense is about. You know, it basically says that um, there are no lawful avenues left that have any viability to succeed. And so, you know, now people are, you know, are left to, you know, going and shutting off the safety valves of pipelines as they come into the United States from Canada, you know, like the valve turners did uh, that we defended, you know, and so, you know, the problems that I think we are facing, um, you know, are vast um, and deep. Um, but if we don't get a handle on them, you know, I, I think that um, the the capitalist corporations that are kind of funding this um, harassment and repression of activists, you know, I think the backlash, you know, is, is going to be more painful for them than them, you know, acknowledging that they've profited off of the suffering of living things on the planet. And now they have to, you know, eat some shit and take responsibility for their misconduct. So you mentioned climate necessity defense, and you mentioned that you utilize it in the valve turners case. Now, for some of our audience that might not have heard of the valve turners and uh, how you've uh, litigated these cases, could you please give our audience some more detail? And um, also, how is the climate necessity defense that you're utilizing, how that came from um, the general criminal defense of necessity? Sure. So the valve turners were a group of 50-year-old-plus professional people um, who had been engaged in environmental and climate work most of their lives. You know, some were uh, educators, you know, science-based people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they had, you know, tr attempted to use all of the legal means to stave off the worst consequences of climate change, and they were failing, and they were failing for their children and their grandchildren. And so one morning, um, they spread across the Canadian-U.S. border, and they went to these tar sands pipelines that crossed from Canada into the U.S. There were five of them. And they simply walked up to these pipelines and turned off the safety valves, um, which are basically, you know, they use these safety valves when they clean the pipes. You know, they're also meant to be able to safely shut down the flow of oil in the pipeline um, for, you know, a whole host of different reasons, including emergencies. And so they walked up, they turned the valves, and they shut down the entire flow of tar sands oil coming into the U.S., and they live-streamed it. Um, eventually, law enforcement came to each of the locations, and the folks, you know, peacefully went into custody, and they got charged with a variety of felonies um, in Washington, Montana, Minnesota, and North Dakota. Um, and part of their campaign plan, you know, part of their action plan was to attempt to utilize the necessity defense in a court of law and to utilize the jury system and the public court system as a way to help educate and do outreach um, on the dire consequences of climate change, particularly in communities that don't often get exposed to that kind of information. You know, oftentimes communities that have pipelines and refineries in them, you know, most of the people there um, get a paycheck, you know, somehow tied to that industry. And so it's not friendly turf, you know, when you're going into those parts of the country. Um, and so to make a long story short, um, we had really incredible success in utilizing the climate necessity um, defense in Minnesota and in Washington, all the way up to their, those state Supreme Courts 
affirming the right of climate defenders to utilize the necessity defense with a jury. And basically the necessity defense says that, yeah, I broke the law, but I did it because a greater harm would have occurred if I hadn't. I tried all the legal means first, and when they failed, I utilized this illegal mean. Um, and it's up to the jury, basically, to balance the harms and decide, you know, which is a graver crime to destroy the future for, you know, everyone, including future generations, or to basically trespass and shut down a pipeline that is, you know, a key part of, um, of you know, climate change within the U.S. And, um, you know, it was a really cool experience. We, um, you know, we were able to put on climate scientists and policy analysts and experts in civil disobedience. And, you know, all these different types of experts came to these rural county courthouses and took the stand and explained to these 12 jurors uh, why a mainstream white person who had never broken the law before would risk decades in prison and turn off this pipeline in this way. And, um, you know, and it was a fantastic experience for the local folks. You know, in a couple of the cases, after the trials were over, um, you know, we would, you know, for instance, like in Montana, you know, we, um, the defendant and supporters and legal team, you know, we all went to a bowling alley and basically the whole town showed up to this bowling alley to meet us and shake our hands you know, we had a number of jurors, even after they found our clients guilty, would shake their hands and thank them for what they had done. You know, they'd say, we couldn't find you not guilty because, you know, the judge told us we couldn't, uh, you know, in the cases where the judges denied the necessity defense. But, you know, I respect what you did. Thanks for coming here. You know, I mean, it was it was a really powerful experience to see how the courtroom can be used for true advocacy work, um, you know, especially in communities where you normally, you know, don't have boots on the ground, you know, normally you don't have easy inroads. But by the end of these trials, the whole town was talking about these strange, you know, white smart people and their experts that were, you know, like in Washington, for instance, we put up these maps that showed sea level rise. And a number of the jurors actually found their farms and found their homes on the map, and their farms were underwater in 10 years. And so they, for the first time, they were actually able to see the truth and to see facts and maps and really understand that the bullshit that they're being fed by the corporations and by the fossil fuel industry over Facebook and, you know, and, you know, Fox News and stuff like that, it was actually really exposed as a lie. And it started to make the local folks question who was actually telling them the truth and why. You know, why would somebody risk a decade in prison to come to our community it's going to be underwater in 10 years because of climate change. Oh, they actually care about us. You know, they're actually trying to do something good for us. And who are the people that are, you know, telling us that, um, you know, that that's not true? Oh, it's the industry that's profiting, you know, off of, um, you know, off of the pipeline or the refinery or whatever it, you know, is. And so I think it really um, was an incredibly important lesson um, on how to utilize the courtroom and utilize litigation as part of a campaign, um, especially with regard to climate. Right, because we can try and change the law through the court system, but more importantly, if we change people's minds and their actions and um, outside of the court system, we can um, more effectively change laws. So public campaigns are really important. And I think one reason that you had success, and of course, the litigation strategy is just amazing, but um, the, the the valve turners themselves, I mean, they're, they're very affable people. And I know, and I say this, I have not met them, but just from 
from um, reading interviews, it seems that um, yeah, they're earnest. They, you know, yes, they're trustworthy. Exactly. That they, they have. They they look very earnest, and and the way that they committed the civil disobedience, if you will, was they they thought of everything. They ensured that there was no safety um, risk. They didn't want to harm anyone. They didn't want to. Um, you know, do anything that would actually cause environmental damage because they didn't know what they were doing. They waited for the police there. They called the companies um, beforehand to tell them what they were about to do. I mean, they knew that they w- they would get caught. They didn't resist getting caught. It was all, it was, um, the, the, the whole process was just uh, there so they could utilize this um in the court system and tell people that, hey, what do we have to do? Like, we've tried everything. What else can we do? And I thought that that was um, just very inspirational. Yeah. And I mean, in Minnesota, you know, we won. You know, no one got convicted. They shut down those pipelines. They trespassed. They were charged with interfering with critical energy infrastructure, you know, and multiple felonies. And they walked out of that courtroom not guilty of all charges. You know, so, I mean. Congratulations. That's just yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, it was important. And, um, and it opened the door, I think, um, for a number of other challenges around the country. You know, um, Minnesota was one of the, the state's. Um, you know, where the valve turners, you know, we went all the way up to the Minnesota Supreme Court. The Supreme Court affirmed the right of climate defenders to utilize the necessity defense with the jury. That is binding for all the future Line 3 activists that will be fighting, you know, Line 3 over the next several years, you know, and more. You know, there's, there's many more, you know, threats, um, you know, from that industry in Minnesota to come. And so, you know, that is you know, a real gift and a real tool um, that these individuals were able to give to future activists because of the careful strategizing and planning um, that they did, you know, as well as some hard legal work too. But um, it it was, you know, it was very carefully um, set up by the clients, you know, by the climate defenders themselves as well. Um, and we can't underestimate that. Oh, yeah. I think that they did a fantastic job because if they had not taken so many precautions for it to be so secure um, and safe, they might not have had such success with uh, local populations. For instance, you know, if, if they had actually accidentally harmed the environment or something by releasing oil. Um, but um, I wanted to turn now to the bison case in Yellowstone because, if I understand correctly, this case concerned criminal charges against people that were um, not trespassing, that were photographing park operations. They were hazing bison in Yellowstone, and uh, these people just wanted to protect bison. And what they were doing was exercising their, you know, First Amendment rights and ensuring government accountability, right? Because if you don't watch the government, then what accountability is there, right? Um, but maybe I'm, I'm missing something. Could you uh, please tell our audience more? Sure, yeah. This was a case that was brought by our board president, um, who is a lawyer in um, Missoula, Montana. And she represented um, some volunteers with the Buffalo Field Campaign. And this campaign is decades old, um, and they have basically been watchdogging and, you know, filing lawsuits and basically holding um, various state and federal entities accountable for a stupid um, program that they are running where they round up the last of the wild buffalo um, and they, you know, sell them off for hamburgers or they put them in pens or, you know, in this case, they were hazing mothers and babies, um, that were migrating, you know, I mean, this is right near Yellowstone National Park. It's big open spaces. It's the last of the habitat that they have, you know, because historically we, uh, you know, killed off most of them. 
And so there's a volunteer that is basically documenting government misconduct, um, you know, especially because there had been some litigation that had basically said, you know, thou shalt not do this. And here, you know, the agency is doing it. And so an individual, um, you know, had stopped his car and was in a lawful place and, you know, got out and basically was using a camera to document the government misconduct. And um, park, um, I think it was state park uh, folks, end up arresting him and charging him with multiple um, crimes. And um, he ends up, you know, winning the criminal case and then suing them um, under the Federal Civil Rights Act uh, for violating his constitutional rights, and the court upholds um, the the right of the public to basically be videotaping public servants doing their public duties in public places with no right to privacy. Yeah, and nor should they have a right to privacy, right? I mean, they're representing the people, aren't they? <laughs> in a Correct. in in a ostensibly democratic country and if you can't record the government I mean the government records us right all the time so right it's quite democratic then to uh, record them well I'm very glad that the charges were uh, dismissed and not only that but that the uh, constitutional violation was then found to have occurred and uh, that judgment was upheld well we have reached our time I know you're extremely busy. So I just have one final uh, question for you. And that is for activists and attorneys that are focused on public interest out there, what is the main strategy? What is a strategy where activists and attorneys can work together? What should we focus on? The clock is ticking right on, on being able to mitigate and ameliorate the effects of climate change and restructure society in more of a public interest fashion. That is a big question, um, <laughs> but I would say, you know, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is like, you know, we all have to start taking ourselves more seriously as movement participants and, you know, lawyers are absolutely movement participants. Um, so, you know, doing things like, um, you know, learning about digital security, learning about security culture. Uh, you know, making it harder for the state to spy and interfere on, you know, the movement, especially because the clock is ticking. You know, I mean, we can't we can't spend decades, um, you know, monkeying around at this point. You know, we've got to really kind of get to the point fast. Um, the other thing I would say is don't be afraid to bring the politics of your case into the courtroom. Um, sometimes lawyers think that it is their role to sort of try to sanitize their client and the case in a way that is going to be most palatable to the mostly white male judges. Um, but that is often not the case. And for activists that are willing to risk arrest for a cause, they want to continue that commitment into the courtroom. And it's our job as lawyers to help them facilitate to help facilitate that to the extent that it doesn't cross you know any of our ethics rules. Um, and so you know I think learning our, your movement history, learning about state repression, uh, learning about the cause that your clients you know or activists are engaged in, you know what their theory of change is, you know all of those uh, things are important for lawyers um, to participate in. And then I would also say, you know, to the extent feasible, um, you know, we really need more lawyers to step up and do pro bono legal work. Um, you know, most activists don't have an extra $5,000 laying around to pay for attorney fees. Um, and so, you know, we need top-notch lawyers willing to do some pro bono work, um, especially um, lawyers that are willing to potentially travel and pro hoc vice uh, into courts where there are very limited choices for activists. Um, you know, maybe it's a rural area or a really conservative area. 
if the person is relegated to a public defender, they're not going to be adequately represented. Um, you know, the judge, the prosecutor, you know, is often going to be incredibly hostile to those people. And, you know, you know, I always tell my law clerks and, and um, the lawyers that I mentor, you know, sometimes you're going to lose cases, um, especially when your client intentionally gets themselves arrested doing something illegal. You know, there's a chance that that person is going to get punished for that. But if you represent them properly, if you respect, you know, what they did and why they did it, um, and you attempt to make the trip through the criminal punishment system, um, you know, the least onerous possible, then they go through that process and come out the other end intact, um, you know, with, with the ability to go back to the movement and continue being an effective part of that movement. If they have a super crappy experience and they feel like they got railroaded and they got talked down to by some daddy lawyer, uh, you know, they're going to come out of that process and say, I never want to experience that again. I think I'm going to go back to, um, you know, clicking like on Facebook as my form of activism and sit on the couch, you know, and, and that's the antithesis of what we really need right now. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for your time today and your insight and for your sure. important work. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.